If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. A very busy day all over the place, but headlining everything today is the report about the Emergencies Act, which... Well, largely exonerated and backed the federal government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. It said that it was warranted and uh, therefore, presumably, a decision that um, should not be criticized. We bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, also a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. Phil, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, sir. So let me go back to what I just said there. When I say that they were exonerated and they were said that the move was warranted, and then I said, therefore, they should not be criticized, does that last one fit? Or with what the justice said, could they still be criticized? Well, there was mild criticism of sort of the language that the prime minister used to refer to the protesters little strong. Um, but yeah, it is basically it's a whitewash. It's everything that uh, a lot of people disagreed with. And when the act was invoked in February, um, it looks like this judge independently said the answer is yes. So I guess the case is closed. I'm I am convinced that there is not a single Canadian whose opinion will have changed as a result of this ruling today that those who hated it will still hate it and those who loved it will still love it. Do you feel otherwise? Do you think anything will have changed or are we still going to be every bit as divided on this as we were at 1 minute to noon today? Well, based on the reactions I'm seeing in social media, I think you're right. Uh there are people that thought it was justified uh, from the get-go. I'm not one of them, by the way. There are those who thought it was overkill from day one. And I don't think there'll be any common ground here. I'm not seeing in the language so far. Now, it's still early hours since the report was was released. But from what I've gathered up to date, I, I think you're right. I think that we've, we're talking about well-entrenched positions on both sides. Um, I'm sure Justin Trudeau is doing cartwheels right now in his office because of what the report said. But no, I don't see any movement on either side at this point. One of the interesting things that the justice said today was that a, a, a reasonable person who heard these facts could have come to a different opinion. I was kind of surprised that that was said because that seemed to crack the door open for exactly what we're talking about, holding those views and having room to still hold those views. Yeah, that is a curious statement to make, but there's something else that I, if, if you if you allow me one second of to course. point out that I think is really problematic, and that is that in the decision, uh, he said that there was a threat to national security, and yet CSIS, and in the Emergencies Act, by the way, it does state that the act relies on the CSIS definition of national security as contained in Section 2 of the CSIS Act. And as you said, I, I spent 15 years at CSIS working on terrorism. See, the CSIS director said quite definitively in his testimony that they looked into the actors behind the convoy, at least some of them, their actions, their intentions, and they didn't find a threat to national security. So so why Justice Rulo said there was a threat, given that the act says you follow what CSIS says, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking a disconnect here. Um, and I, I, I can't explain that at this point. But but you're right. I, I think there, you know, it, it will be open for interpretation for quite some time. Um, does it set a precedent for future use? Maybe. 
Um, that's but the, I sincerely hope in any event that we don't see this invoked anytime soon. Yeah, and see, that's the $10 million, $20 million, $100 million question yeah. is I think a lot of people are saying, okay, has this now, again, to use the phrase, crack the door to say, okay, we were not told we couldn't do this. So the next time, it's a little easier to use it. And therefore, we may see this used again. What, what do you think about that idea? Well, it certainly is a possibility. The other inching recommendation by Justice Rulo is to remove reference to the CSIS definition of national security in the absence of the CSIS definition. And CSIS is the organization responsible for investigating threats to national security. Who decides what constitutes national security threat? So if we get a different government in 2024, 2025, and we get a blockade of a rail line or something analogous elsewhere in the country, do they decide it's national security? Because well, there's no definition of national security in the act, so we'll just make it up on the fly. That's what worries me is that, you know, as much, whatever you think of the protests and, and and for the record, for what it's worth, I, I, and I didn't agree with, with the rationale behind it. Um, the professional in me says it did not constitute a threat to national security, ergo the act wasn't required. Well, if a government can make up its definition whenever it wants, then of course you're going to have it invoked for different things. And we'll have the same debate again. You'll be talking four years from now well, let's about whether that. or not the next instance was justified. Phil, let's flip that for just one second, because what you're suggesting is, is the bar lowered a little so that it could be easier to use? What about the other way? What about, you mentioned a rail blockade, for example. We've seen those in this country. If yep. something like that was to happen, will we now be seeing those who were opponents of this who don't like this use, saying, well, wait a second, you used it on our protest, get yeah. your butt moving out there and invoke it and get them moved out of the way. I wonder now if there's going to be pressure to use this more from those who feel begrudged by what happened here. I think it's a real possibility. Uh, there are people, obviously, um, who either supported the protesters or, interestingly, you have the Canadian Civil Liberties Union, which is neutral, I suppose, saying that the act was not necessary. I think there'll be a lot of pressure. But again, it, 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 I go back to my earlier point. If the government of the day decides what constitutes a threat, it can say, nope, there's nothing to see here. Move on. And and, and it can maybe you know ignore that kind of pressure. But I, I think it's opened the door to some really... Um, uncomfortable questions we have to ask ourselves as Canadians and what kinds of powers the government should be allowed to leverage at a time like this. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to say it's, I hate slippery slope arguments on principle, but I do think there's a possibility that if something analogous, even remotely analogous happens, you'll hear voices for, well, you did it then, you better do it now. Right. Because the, maybe, I don't know if it's the worst, I'll say worst, but I don't know if it's the worst, but one of the worst things that probably could come out of something like this is the perception that this is used as a political weapon rather than as a tool to stop something that was out of control. If this starts to look like, well, you did it against your political enemies, but you're not yeah. willing to use it against your political friends, there we've got a huge problem. We do. And, and and the bottom line is, is that this act is a very powerful piece of legislation. Let's face it, it replaced the War Measures Act. Yes. And that was invoked against the FLQ in the 60s for right reasons, because they've been killing people in Montreal and setting off bombs. It, it should only be invoked in the absolute absence of any other tool. And, and many are convinced that other tools weren't exhausted. It has to be really, really bad for us to come in place. I don't think that that situation had been reached in Ottawa in February of last year, uh, or I guess, is it last year? I've lost yeah. my calorie dates already <laughs> two years ago. Um, but the, the fact is, is that, um, yeah, the, the bar is somewhere. Is it raised? Is it lowered? I'm not sure. But yeah, th th this is, I don't think it's a good, I don't think it's a good result. Um, and, and I think it has opened the door for, for possibilities that we probably haven't thought a lot about going forward. Mm. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk, uh, Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, we always love having you on. Thanks for doing this, Phil. 
Thanks. Take care. The past few years have not been fantastic for airlines and airports, as you probably well know, with uh, COVID and things shut down and then challenges that followed. If you've flown in the last little while, if you've had to go to an airport I, in the summertime last June, I was heading out to the Memorial Cup for the Hamilton Bulldogs out in New Brunswick. And I got to tell you, the experience at Pearson Airport was horrendous. And I know that my experience was not, I was not alone. It's not always that way. But, you know, it's been tough times for airlines and airports. So they've lost a lot of money. And what are they doing now to try and recoup? Well, some places are implementing a user pay system or adding to their user pay system. They are going to be going after you if you buy a ticket to pay a little bit more to help pay some of their costs to make up some of this, it seems. Uh, Gabor Lukash is president of Air Passenger Rights. It's an advocacy group. He joins us now. Uh, Gabor, thanks for doing this today. Good afternoon. We know that not everybody who flies these days is thrilled with the experience. Maybe that's often a case, but it seems more <laughs> lately that people are cranky about this. So when they're already cranky and now airports say, oh, by the way, we're going to charge you a little more, are people going to take this and say, yeah, I understand, that's cool? Or are they going to say, really? Like, how about fix things before you hit me with more money? How's this going to play? It is hard to predict, um, you know, in, in terms of, we're talking about economic questions primarily. And we, when you look at such a situation, the question is what passengers' alternatives are. Can they fly out perhaps from an American airport, which may very likely have a much lower fee, for example? Uh, if you are, say, in Halifax, where I live, I don't have that many options. If you're in Toronto, perhaps, or uh, Vancouver, you may drive south of the border. Um, in terms of people's emotional reactions, that's a separate matter. Uh, certainly nobody wants to pay more. Uh, that That's, that's obvious. Uh, but perhaps this debate should be more focusing on uh, how airports operate and some kind of accountability and oversight about their operation and how they spend their money. Okay, let's let's start there then, because there is an argu argument to be made, and I think if we're being fair, we have to offer this, that things were really bad for the airlines and airports for a couple of years. They've lost a lot of money. They have to find a way to make some of this money back, whether we like it or not. Therefore, this seems like a reasonable way to do it. Rather than tax everybody, maybe people who don't fly, we're going to add a little tax to those who use the airport. Is that a fair suggestion? Well, first of all, why do they have? Why should they be making up for their past losses? You know, there are people during the pandemic who lost, people who were out of jobs, people who had real hardship, who is making up for their losses. So why 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 are the why are these corporations special anyway? I do have some problem with that starting premise. Okay. To begin with. Okay. Um, but uh, and and also trying to justify raising prices is a very is a very uh, futile exercise because because the reality is if a, if an airport has a quasi monopolistic position, they're going to charge as much as people are willing to pay at all and still fly from that airport. Um, the bigger question is how airports are being funded. Is it a per user type of uh, funding, which was have which we see in Canada, or perhaps more from taxpayers' money, uh, which is the model that we see more in the U.S., uh, where uh, the government more looks at airports as economic enablers and therefore believes, rightly or wrongly, that's a different economic question, that the money that is pumped into those airports to, from taxpayers' money is 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 
very much returned in terms of uh, benefit to the to the country, even in terms of tax revenues from the tourism, from the traffic they bring in. Um, so, but the biggest problem I've seen in Canada is how did these this airports end up? Some of them is quite huge debts, and that's not simply the pandemic. It's a question of what kind of developments they do at the airports and what type of oversight there is over how they spend the money. Because with the argument they make is, oh, we have all this debt, so now we have to make up for it. Right. But the question is, how did you get that? How did you end up getting that debt to begin with? Okay. And how did they? Um, that's that's that should be asked on an airport by airport basis. Um, each airport has its own story. They made some investments in terms of development. Uh, some of them were good. Some of them may not have been that great. Uh, but the ultimate question is, the way airports are set up, there's no oversight other than passengers refusing to fly from a given airport on how the airport charges those airport approval fees. If they just charge tomorrow $100, there will be no remedy available to passengers. And that over lack of oversight is where our inquiry should focus. So uh, if someone came to you, and we are coming to you right now, but if someone came to you and said, yeah, you you are you know air passenger rights. We want to hear from you, the expert. I got to fly out of somewhere. I don't really like these fees, though. Would you advise people to use your wallet as your vote? Or do you say, yeah, you know, it's just a little bit of money. I wouldn't worry too much about it right now. I always recommend passengers to use their wallet as a vote, as a way of letting airlines and possibly the airport know that they don't like what they see. Um, that is, unfortunately, pretty much the only way to get your message across to this type of entities. Um, with airlines and the airports, they are... Similarly, on a kind of quasi-monopolistic or duopolistic or oligopolistic um, uh, corporations and, and and the business and environment, so that's that's pretty much the only thing you can do. Uh, again, the bigger discussion that should be happening is how airlines are being managed, how they are being owned, how how decisions for for the for the airports are being made. The difficulty, Gabor, with with so much of this is that some people have to fly uh, for whatever you know business or to get home or whatever else. And I just think, okay, I agree with you to vote with your wallet, but for everyone who votes with their wallet, does that not mean that the people who then have to use the airlines and the airports are going to end up getting dinged for more because they're still going to try and attach that money somewhere and they'll just pass it on to the next person that somewhere along the way, someone is going to get nailed with these extra costs? It might be, although if you have less passengers, you have also less revenue, less uh, and, 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 and you can, the airports cannot and airlines cannot raise prices and fees indefinitely because uh, at some point just some people will say I, I even though I need to fly I just cannot afford it I just cannot get on the plane because it costs me too much so especially with the decline of the discretionary income that that people have to spend on flights um, that will have an effect uh, I I don't think I wouldn't expect anybody to travel from a Canadian airport out of uh, patriotism to and charity to other hmm. passengers you know, every time, and I've chatted with you a number of times about different things, and, and every time I do, I always come to the same conclusion. There was a time when flying was so glamorous. It was seen as so glamorous, and somehow now we've got to the point where it's so much the opposite that we it, it just leads to complaint after complaint after complaint. And I don't know if that's entirely just us being a nation of complainers or if they have legitimately made it, the industry has made it so that we have great cause to complain. 
Uh, I think there are great causes to complain. Uh, what, what we have seen, for example, over the holidays or in the past summer, the kind of mayhem at the airports, that's not a normal operation of first world country, not even in a second world country. <laughs> um, it, it more reminded uh, one of a banana republic than a normal Western country. It's not for naught that we ended up for world fame for how terrible our airports were last summer. Um, so, so that's, that's uh, highly irregular. Part of the problem is that there is a lack of uh, accountability. And and what happened past summer, although it was happening at Canadian airports, it was still airlines had a very significant play to roll in that in how they were over overbooking not yeah, the flights but the good. airport's capacities. It, it, it was definitely not good. Gabor, we have to run, unfortunately. It was not good. But listen, I, I always appreciate coming on. Gabor Lukash from the Air Passenger Rights uh, Advocacy Group. You can find him online and his site. Uh, Gabor, thank you for this. Thank you for having me. The Blue Jays are at spring training right now. That's news. Everyone's interested in baseball starting again because uh, whether you love baseball, that's a good reason, or just because you like the idea that spring is coming, that's another good reason. But news today that Sportsnet, owned by Rogers, which owns the Blue Jays, will not be sending its radio crew on the road to cover road games. They will continue to do that from a studio in Toronto let me bring in Rod Peterson. He is a uh, the host of the Rod Peterson Show. He used to be the longtime voice of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, a man who traveled, I think, to all road games, now host of the Rod Peterson so- Show, as I say. Uh, Rod, how are you today? I'm doing good, Scott. Good to hear from you, buddy. You as well. Hey, listen, when you hear this, and Rogers, with all the money that it has, and the Blue Jays, with all the money they spend, and the money that's being spent on Rogers Center to redo it and everything else, does it make any sense at all that you would not send your radio team on the road? Uh, Not common sense (laughs) uh, at all. Dollars and cents, maybe. And it's sad. This all started, as you know, in the pandemic, and I saw that story move across the wire. This morning, the TV crew travels, which is also Rogers, but the radio crew does not. Incidentally, same story with the Calgary Flames radio crew, which is Rogers. Yes. Uh, and the Derek Will, Jeff. Derek Wills, former host of the Hamilton Bulldogs, former play-by-play guy of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Exactly. And uh, the Winnipeg Jets radio crew doesn't travel either. So I figured there'd be more of this coming out of COVID. Uh, it's sad. It's sad. I noticed Ben Wilson was not quoted in the article. Jerry Howarth had several comments on it. Uh, it's a sad sign of the time, Scott. That's kind of all I can say. You you did this job in the CFL. It's it's. I mean, look, it's different, but it's the same. You've done it. Um, what's the advantage to being on the road? Why why should anyone care? Because for some people, it's like, well, as long as I can turn on my radio and I hear them telling me if it's a ball, a strike, or a home run, why do I care? Uh, life's about perspective. The broadcasts are better if the crew is on the road in the stadium. There's no two ways about it. Jerry Howard talked about having the pregame visits with the players and the umpires, and I'm sure that's all true. I would go down to the field before the game and chat with the coaches and the players and the referees. Same thing. But I've heard from consumers, and Blue Jays radio airs here, it has for huh, 40 years on CFSL radio and Weyburn, that the people say they, the listeners say they can't tell a difference. So there's that. Um, so I uh, it's a matter of opinion. I would just say the broadcasts are better if the crew is on site, but you kind of have to have a trained ear to even notice that. So, I think. 
So does it? I mean, I, I, if that's the case, then what would be the reason to think that this is not going to happen with almost every team, and maybe not just with radio? I mean, why not do your TV, except for maybe a, a rinkside reporter or a field reporter? Why not do all everything from home? I'm with you. Uh, that's why I said coming out of COVID, I'm surprised as many crews have started traveling now. From what I understand, and I don't mind saying this, apparently the Calgary Flames have said we'll pay to bring the crew on the road. If there's people listening right now that know Derek Wills, ask him. Because that's what I heard. The Flames said, we'll pay. If you don't want to pay Rogers, we will. And they said, no, we want to keep them in Calgary. So that's even more than a dollars and cents decision that I don't want to get into. But it's just it's just sad. But I mean, I've listened. I spent half the year in Calgary and I listened to the games. You can't really tell. Um, but it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, I... I wouldn't want to do this job if I wasn't able to travel. I was lucky to do it in the era that I did, because if I wasn't able to travel, I wouldn't want to do it. It's fun. Well, it, it's fun, although, as I say, I think if you're Rogers, the answer is, does the does it make any difference to our bottom line? And other than maybe being a little embarrassing that a communications company that owns a team wouldn't think to do it, I, I suppose if, if nobody else can really tell, then... You know, maybe either they're doing too good a job or are we're not we're not as avid radio listeners for games as we once were because now games are on TV and that's where most people spend their time. Well, you know, the Golden Horse Show shoes a big area. There's a lot of people listening right now. Radio is still very, very big. Uh, but maybe I think we all kind of just got to move on from what we were used to. I grew up listening to Tom and Jerry. You probably did too. Yes, absolutely. That was our youth. That was our youth. And Tom, to this day, was a major um, hero of mine. But that's just not the case anymore. And to be honest, just down the road, the Argos, I just had Mike Hogan on my show today, the voice of the Argos. They haven't traveled for years, pre-pandemic. Forget about that. TSN Radio has been airing television broadcasts for Argos hmm. road games for five, six years. It is, uh, it, is, it is definitely a different world for sure. Uh, Rod Peterson, you can uh, catch his show, Rod the Rod Peterson Show, on Game Plus TV and WQEE Radio if you can find that somewhere. Uh, Rod, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate you jumping on. Thanks, Scott. Have a great weekend. You as well. Happy family. Well, I don't know. Is there family day out there? Yes, 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 yes. Well, there you go. Happy Family Day then. Rod Peterson. Uh, Always love having Rod on. Great uh, great play-by-play voice, and his show is a lot of fun. If you're, uh, You can go find it online, too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Today, the mayor, Hamilton, uh, put out a tweet about daycare in this city. I want to bring in the mayor of Hamilton, Andrea Horvath, who joins us now. Mrs. Mayor, thank you for doing this today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Scott. So, um, you know what? This is, uh, I, I know your tweet talked about the amount of daycare opportunities that are now available in Hamilton and what this is saving people. Yeah, I mean, it really is a, a game changer. And ask any, any parents uh, that have children in childcare, and they'll tell you, that uh, if it's more than one child, oftentimes their childcare fees are h- as high as their mortgages or even more. So what, with the federal uh, program for child care, uh, the um, people of Hamilton, families in Hamilton, uh, are saving uh, 9000 uh, over $9,000 a year for, for families. And that's amazing. Like $9,100 on average for a family in Hamilton is, is what they're saving on their childcare fees. 
it's it's pretty fantastic. The the, the report says that the city has ninety six percent of its licensed childcare operators that have opted into this, and that is supporting about forty two hundred local children. But I got to think there are more than forty two hundred children of daycare age in the city of Hamilton. I don't know if that's the case or not. Are are we simply tapped out that we can't handle more than that since almost every daycare center is doing this, or are we covering pretty much everyone? Uh, no, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Scott. Part of the uh, uh, the, the plan, I, I, my understanding is anyways, is that we start with getting the fees down and then expanding access to childcare. And so you're absolutely right. Uh, not every family that uh, needs access to childcare is getting it. But I have to c- commend our staff, though, at the City of Hamilton. Not every city was able to achieve uh, that kind of uh, uh, response with 96% of, of licensed childcare operators uh, opting into the program. And that's that's our city staff beating, beating the bushes and doing that hard work to make sure people were informed, they were engaged, uh, the providers knew what was happening, when it was happening. Uh, so it was very seamless and, and really uh, quite, um, well, quite successful. But next, of course, we have to focus on uh, expansion of childcare, making sure families who don't have access can get access. We, we need to make sure we're dealing with things like kids with special needs, uh, lower, lower income families, families who are the most vulnerable families, uh, uh, that we have in our in our city, francophone families, diverse communities. I mean, there's uh, it, you know the uh, black, indigenous, and other racialized newcomer communities uh, need childcare as well. And so, so there's definitely room for improvement. Uh, and it's really going to be important to to engage with community partners and ensure that we have more access to childcare for Hamilton families. Based on what you sent out, I think I can see the advantage to someone to save the money. Is there any advantage to a daycare to doing this? To the daycare itself, is, is there a benefit for them to sign on? Well, I think what it what it does is it uh, it, it creates uh, an opportunity for the childcare centers to uh, continue to attract uh, good staff. For example, it really what it does is it it stabilizes the system, Scott. That's what it really really does. The childcare system has been a, a patchwork of providers uh, and with uh, with with very low wages and a very transient workforce because. It wasn't a, it's not a stable system, but with this kind of funding and this kind of commitment from other orders of government uh, really does help us to stabilize the child care system and, and provide, uh, you know, talented ECEs. Uh, young people now see this as, a, as, a, as an actual career path. Uh, people will stay as uh, ECEs or early childhood educators in, the, in a system uh, if, they, if they can see a future in it, whereas in the past it was, that was not the case. Uh, people can read more about this. There's a, a, a release on the City of Hamilton's website, hamilton.ca. You can also go to uh, Mayor Horvath's uh, Twitter page. It, uh, it has an announcement about this. We wanted to squeeze you in today because I know you're busy and I know your time was tight. Uh, Andrea Horvath, thanks for doing this today. Thank you, Scott. Happy family day. Enjoy the long weekend. You as well. The Globe and Mail in a giant front page splash. The only thing on the front page of the Globe and Mail today has a story that, let me read you the first two paragraphs, go like this. China employed a sophisticated strategy to disrupt Canada's democracy in the 2021 federal election campaign as Chinese diplomats and their proxies backed the re-election of Justin Trudeau's liberals, but only to another minority government, and worked to defeat conservative politicians considered to be unfriendly to Beijing. The full extent of the Chinese interference operation is laid bare in both secret and top-secret Canadian security intelligence service documents 
viewed by the Globe and Mail that cover the period before and after the September 2021 election that returned the Liberals to office. I want to bring in Gordon Holden. He is Director Emeritus of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science with the University of Alberta. Uh, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. This, uh, as I say, it's kind of ironic that as we're talking with all the attention today on the trucker convoy and whether this threatened our democracy, here is a story that regardless of what you think about the truckers, this one seems absolutely directly to threaten our democracy. There is no doubt that the revelations in the Globe story and presumably from these documents, secret and top secret, are alarming and concerning. Um, Based on my 22 years working on China uh, within the federal government, uh, this is not something unique. It's not the first time, uh, but that it lays out in extraordinary detail uh, what the PRC missions, plural, uh, were doing during the campaign is concerning. It's impossible to know what the final effect was, uh, whether it was decisive in defeating or electing certain people or others. Uh, but this is precisely the sort of uh, risk that uh, democracies face at a time when both missions here uh, and also cyber methods uh, can sometimes be in, be uh, influential. And it doesn't necessarily take that many votes to swing things one way or the other. So yes, it is deeply concerning. Yeah, the prime minister today said, no, this is, you know, the, the election was won by the liberals fair and square in spite of Chinese meddling. Meanwhile, the Globe talks about the, uh, where is it here, the former consul general in Vancouver boasting in 2021 about how she helped defeat two conservative MPs. It's, I suppose it's uh, like so many other things, it's very political. If you uh, If you don't think it's a big deal, then it probably wasn't a big deal. And if you think it was a big deal, it may have spoken to how the government was formed. Well, whatever the results, whether these efforts were successful or not, and the Chinese um, officials appear to be taking credit for it, but whether or not they're right about that, the fact that they are even attempting to do that, assuming the reports are accurate, there's no reason to believe otherwise, uh, it is problematic. I mean, it's fine and normal if, say, a, a consul general at a Chinese mission in Canada has an opinion who they'd like to see win. Uh, I'm sure that our ambassadors in given countries uh, have preferences to who they think should win. That's a very different thing, though, from being actively involved with the community. And the ones who are, to me, the most concerning to me are the Canadians of Chinese heritage for a variety of reasons, um, but principally the fact that they potentially are more vulnerable. They may still have family members back home. And some of them may be recently arrived and just in the process of transitioning to life in Canada uh, beginning to feel Canadian, etc., and they are the the ones that uh, I worry about the most. The, the general populace, I think, is unlikely to be swayed by an appeal from a, a Chinese consul general to vote one way or the other. But those who are vulnerable, and that generally means the Chinese diaspora, that's the ones to be, I think to be most concerned about. Okay, two things, and they may be the same thing. They may be different things. What should we do about this, and what are we doing about this? Well, here we come to the crux of it. And uh, as again, I'd say from long government service, I, I'm aware of these sorts of issues. The what do you do about it as everything in life seems to be always the toughest part. And to me, um, where we have credible uh, evidence um, of misbehavior, not that giving an opinion on, but actually working behind the scenes surreptitiously to uh, influence elections, 
I think that um, uh, serious consideration should be given to having those people leave. Um, it, to me, and I may have said this before on this program, but political interference by countries with authoritarian regimes uh, tends to be a bit like crabgrass. You pull it out and it grows back. So I'm not, I've never had the feeling, and I have been part of efforts in the past to expel uh, Chinese diplomats through misbehavior, but I never had the feeling that meant it was decisively dealt with. It'll happen again, in which case you have to act again. But not acting has its costs. And uh, I think it can send the wrong signal, either that we don't know or that we don't care. That the second one being even worse, um, if if the other side, could be China, could be Russia, whatever, thinks that we know or believes that we know and yet we do nothing, I think that sends precisely the wrong signal. Well, it's, and it's not very just this. minor. Just pull in the ambassador and ream them out. Um, but if it's more systematic and and systematic, as this would appear to point to, then there's other options are available. Of course, it does mean, and this is why you have to think hard about it, that for every person we send home, they will do the same. Sure. And, yes, uh, we've seen two. Our own network to some extent. We've seen two Michaels, and we've seen others, and 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 I mean, there's other things as well. We've had these reports of the Chinese police stations in our cities, and other, yep. I mean, it's just, but and yet, you know, you're right. I, I, are we willing? And we got to run. Unfortunately, I wish we had a lot longer to talk about this. Are we willing to take a hard stand against China? And thus far, it doesn't appear that we are. Well, I, I would agree that the. That stern actions needed. Just one final uh, comment. Yes, please. I, I, it is important the government act on these things. There's a little bit of me that's a bit nervous that top secret documents are being shown to journalists. Uh, that can that can hurt methods and sources. You can be guaranteed that those people who are cited are going to be more cautious in what they say now, and it may even make some of our allies nervous if we can't keep secret what is secret. But uh, that's, a, that's a separate issue from the, the need for government to take it seriously and do something about it. Gordon Holden, the Director Emeritus of the China Institute and Professor at, uh, in Political Science with the University of Alberta. Thank you, as always, for the time today. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We are not hearing any shortage of stories about ethical lapses. Uh, again, John Tory, we know what happened there. Uh, he's stepping down as mayor as of today. Uh, Mario Dion, the federal conflict of interest and ethics commissioner in recent days, has even called for all federal politicians and ministers to have to go through ethics training, presumably because there's been so many issues that have come up in the last number of years that uh, it is time to try to get this under control a little bit. Uh, let me bring in Daniel Perry. He is a consultant with Summa Strategies. Daniel, thanks for doing this today. Uh, look, we, politicians, politics, there's always issues. Is it just that we have so much social media and so much attention now that we're hearing about this, or are we truly in a time when there does seem to be more ethical lapses than usual? I think it's a bit of a bit of column A and a bit of column B. I think we are seeing a lot more people talking about it. I think there's more publicity around it. Um, but ethical questioning of politicians has always been been around for a number of years, even before social media. I just think people's views of politicians have shifted so much that they just simply don't trust them. So anytime a story like this breaks, they're very, very quick to hop on a politician today who's violated the ethical codes. 
That said, and I, 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 I would agree. I think that you're probably very right on that one. That said, I, I, I couldn't help but when I was looking at Mario Dion's comment about wanting to have training, and he said, because many don't have the ability to identify conflicts of interest. Look, I, I don't know. I know that you are not required to be a member of Mensa before you run for office. <laughs> but I think surely most people, you, me, everybody listening would understand if I make a deal with someone and I'm pocketing some money or someone that I'm married to or related to is benefiting, it's not that complicated, is it? Uh, no, it really should be a no-brainer. I think like toddlers in kindergarten, they know right from wrong. But for some reason, when the plane lands in Ottawa, politicians seem to forget their morality. And to be to be fair, they're human. They slip up. They make mistakes. But when it comes to one of the most recent ones with Minister Ng giving money to one of her best friends, like I feel like political staff should have, but that's their job is to prevent issues like this from happening. So where was the wisdom in the corner saying, actually, minister, this is not a great idea to give your best friend. I think it was like $22,000 of taxpayers dollars. Um, I think politicians, before they make a decision, they should probably do this checklist of like, is this my friend? No. Yeah. No. Then I can give them a contract, but just like giving their head a shake, like it's common sense. Well, look, okay, so so let's say her friend was someone who had applied for a job or whatever, a grant. Surely you could ask someone else in a different office to step in and say, look, I think this person's good, but uh, you know what? They're a friend of mine, so I don't want to make this decision and at least have some other way of doing it. It just it doesn't seem that complicated. And yet time after time, whether it's the prime minister and the Aga Khan or other ones or whatever, it just we've complicated this somehow for something that doesn't need to be complicated. You're absolutely right on that. Like, this is a no-brainer common sense. And, like, if you are in a conflict, taking a step back and saying, this is a conflict of interest for me, I'm going to refer to another minister, to another uh, department to look at this because I'm not comfortable weighing in on it. Um, and if there was a competitive process, that is good. But there's still that level that needs to be taken by our public office holders and decision makers to have allow Canadians to have trust in them. And that is just giving your head a shake and just thinking about it and stepping back. It's okay to say, I can't touch this because I have a, a tie to this person. I'm going to defer to someone else. And I think Canadians would respect that if, if ministers did that instead of just signing a check saying, here you go, buddy. 100%. I mean, look, it's a different thing. It's not a monetary thing, but John Tory, John Tory got caught. Now, who knows if he would have resigned if he hadn't been caught, but he got caught and he says, I'm out, I resign. Whether you think his behavior was problematic or not, I'm amazed how many people are encouraging him to stay on, quite frankly. Mm. But whether you think it's problematic or not, he resigned. He at least said, I blew it. I'm out. What I I don't get is other than him, I'm trying to think of the last politician, especially federally, who got busted Mm. for a conflict of interest or for an ethics violation Mm. and who had to pay a price. If there was a... If there was a penalty to pay, wouldn't that send a message to to others to say, don't do it? Well, to be fair, the ethics commissioner is able to slap a $500 monetary penalty <laughs> onto someone. But when we're talking about a free trip onto the Otter Convocation, hell, even I would pay $500 to do that. So maybe we need to look at reevaluating that and seeing if the ethics commissioner can have a little bit more strength than $500. Because we're talking about politicians that... 
make over 160. It's over 200K. So I don't think $500 is really going to break the bank uh, because you're right. There's really no accountability. The naming and shaming clearly is not working because when you don't have any shame, it doesn't really work. If you knew... If there were, if they decided, if you knew that if you broke, if you were convicted of an ethics violation, you were out, that you had to resign by law, I would bet money, which may be an ethics violation, I'm not sure, but I would bet money <laughs> that you would see less of them because people would suddenly be much more careful. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. But I, I don't think that we're going to see politicians look to put that level of accountability in because they don't want to cost their job because they slip up. But I agree with you. There needs to be some stiffer penalties because what we have now, calling it laughable, what might be an understatement. So do you believe that people, uh, not politicians, us, that, that the people at a certain point just shrug our shoulders and go, oh, well, you know, it's just politicians? Or do you think that it really does diminish people's respect and diminish their expectations and lower people's trust in politicians? I think it's the latter on that. I think people look at it, they're like, oh, just another politician being another politician. But I think at the same time, when it keeps happening over and over again, like we've seen with this government, in the past three years, the ethics commissioner has put out five issues saying there's ethic violations between a minister or a parliamentary secretary, which seems a little bit high. So when we're talking about the longevity of a government, when this keeps happening, you're an average Canadian's concern and like, believing that oh this was just a silly slip up kind of goes down so i think politicians have to be a little bit more realizing that if this keeps happening um canadians are going to lose trust in them and at the end of the day they're probably not going to vote for you in the next election so once again i go back to my point what should happen i i agree with you that politicians are probably not going to uh put a booby trap in place that's going to capture them so what else could we do uh, <laughs> that is a very great question. I'm sure the ethics commissioner would love to weigh in. He's even said increasing the, the monetary fine um, because at the end of the day, if we're actually giving politicians a number that actually will actually impact their bank account, they're more likely to think twice about it. Um, I know in Alberta, they kicked around this idea of recall legislation. So if you get, reach a certain amount of votes uh, within your district, the member can be recalled and they go into a by-election. I think there's some merit there. But I really think there just needs to be better accountability. Like, I, we need to sit down with ministers apparently and walk them through what you can and can't do and actually make them pay attention. So I think yeah. it's really two steps. We need to increase the fines. The Ethics Commission needs to have more power. And I think Canadians need to look a little bit closer and actually pay attention to these violations. So when they go to the ballot box and vote for someone that's violated it once or twice, they might reconsider it because it's pretty sad. Yeah, I'm all for the by-election and the recall as long as the party who was in power that led to this has to pay for the by-election, not the taxpayers, because we end up just <laughs> being dinged See, again. I think that has some merit right there. There you go. Uh, Daniel Perry, consultant with Summer Strategies. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Take care. Have a good weekend. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The outcome of the judicial inquiry into the Emergencies Act usage is. And so let me bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, someone we turn to often because of his great insights on, well, not things like this, because this is unique, but, you know, stuff in this area. Uh, Duff, how are you today? Well, how are you? I'm, I'm excellent. So you've had, like the rest of us, about five hours now to contemplate this. Um 
What do you? I mean, where do we go? What, what, what's the what's the takedown or the 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 what do we take away from this? Well, um, the judge did kind of a strange thing. Um, wouldn't be able to do it as a court ruling uh, because not only did he say he was reluctant to say that the use of the Emergency Act uh, powers by the Trudeau government was legal. But he also said a reasonable, informed person could conclude that it was illegal. And you very rarely see judges rule, issue rulings. Again, this isn't a court case, it's an inquiry. But in a ruling, a judge wouldn't say, I'm ruling this was legal, but at the same time saying, yeah, you could say it's illegal. I mean, that's the word, what he did. The word indecisive, maybe that's too strong a word, but it almost comes to mind. Yes. And uh, I think he's being indecisive because um, there's lots of evidence on both sides and stakeholders on both sides. And so I think he was uh, trying to just walk the middle ground, which uh, means that he didn't really make a decision. Um, He said there were lots of failings uh, and um, that uh, he was you know just reluctant to conclude it was legal and mm-hmm. thought everything could have been done better essentially i i saw already some of the comments that the prime minister has made on this uh i was on the air so i haven't heard what pierre polyev had to say on this but it seems as though uh if i had to guess um whether it's him or anyone else it seems as though both sides probably have some meat here to chew on and say yeah we were right Yes. And I think another reason possibly for the commissioner's reluctance and and sort of speaking out of both sides of his mouth is there are court cases still going on. Uh, groups have challenged it as illegal in court. And the court, uh, some lawyers have said the judge shouldn't even be in a commission of inquiry making a determination about legality, that he should have just stayed away from that whole question. Uh, I think they were wrong. The inquiry that's supposed to be set up is supposed to determine whether it was legal or not. But um, he and he would know, of course, there's court cases going on and and uh, wouldn't want to kind of close the door on a judge in a court case finding one way or the other. So mm-hmm. he found both, that it was legal but questionable <laughs> and a reasonable person could have found that it was illegal. Last hour or an hour and a half ago or so on the show here, we were talking about this and uh, I said, and I still believe this, and I've believed it all along, not a single Canadian will change their point of view on what happened based on, regardless of what the outcome was today. If you no. believed in the Emergencies Act, you are today going to still believe in the Emergencies Act. If you didn't believe in it, you're still going to not believe in it. Is there any reason to think that I'm wrong, that anybody will have changed their mind based on this? No, I don't think so. First of all, um, there's quite a lot of people who are rapidly in favor of one party or another. And sure. this was a very partisan issue because it was the Trudeau government. And conservatives were um, criticizing the Trudeau government at the time very strongly. So for that, those core voters for both those parties, you know, they believe that everything that their party does is right, no matter how wrong it and is. And vice versa. Um, and then you have a whole other segment who would look at it and be sympathetic with one side or the other, uh, 
the right to protest versus the uh, harassment and all sorts of other problems that the truckers caused uh, for down everyone who lived in downtown Ottawa and everyone who worked there and all sorts of businesses as well. Let me ask you, you mentioned partisanship. Let me ask you about this. And this is, so as I'm looking on social media and social media, you know, it's, it's rarely a good place to dive in because it's generally just the swamp, but nonetheless, it does yeah, give the, a, no, the rabid partisans on both sides, on social media. So for sure. That's why it's so, uh, those who though, there. one of the things, one of the common comments that we're seeing from those who say this ruling was ridiculous. Uh, so we know which side they are on. One of the things that's coming up a lot is Paul um, uh, Roliu was a former employee, worked for John Turner in the Liberal Party, and is related to the Trudeau family. Was so with that. What, I'm not disputing his integrity, but by choosing someone that you open the door to comments like this, was it a poor choice? Should there have been someone who was chosen for this who would have eliminated those kind of comments so you eliminate the claims of this thing was rigged from the beginning? This is a very, very important issue that unfortunately um, – the federal government continues to try to ignore because they want to control the appointments of not just inquiry commissioners, but their own watchdogs on ethics, transparency, spending, lobbying. Uh, the We've won a case in uh, a few years ago, Democracy Watch did, challenged the fact that the ruling party cabinet, the Trudeau cabinet, has chosen its own ethics commissioner watchdog and the, the lobbying commissioner that watches over lobbyists who lobby Trudeau cabinet ministers mostly. And the Federal Court of Appeal found that the cabinet was biased in choosing those people. But it was still legal to do because the Supreme Court of Canada essentially legalized cabinet ministers choosing their own watchdogs in a ruling 20 years ago. Yeah. Unfortunately, we tried to appeal because we wanted the Supreme Court to reconsider that ruling. You can't choose your own judge. If Everyone would love to choose their own judge. And cabinet ministers can't be allowed to choose their own judges and should not be allowed to even determine and decide whether an inquiry can take place into anything that, to do with government wrongdoing. Thankfully, in the Emergencies Act, they don't get to decide whether the inquiry has to take place because it's mandated and required. But they still got to cho choose the judge. And, and that, it taints yeah. every process. And Duff, we got to run. partisan bias. we got to run that. Un and undermines the, ru the rulings. The I, I agree. I, and that's the thing. I, I don't, for a second, I'm not impugning the integrity of the man. I, I have no reason to. But no. I think you open the door to questions that are unfair, perhaps. But those questions now exist that probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. Exactly. And if I could say one other quick thing. Very the Trudeau government yep. is right now because the ethics commissioner just resigned and the RCMP commissioner. And they're going to use the same secretive processes that they use to choose the current commissioners who have just resigned. And they're going to choose their own watchdogs, the head of the police force federally and the ethics commissioner. And the ruling party cabinet cannot be the sole, uh, have the sole power to choose these key watchdogs. The other parties have to be involved or an independent commission one way or yeah, the yeah. other. The one way or the is, other. Like BC use, uses the other parties. Duff, we got to run, unfortunately. You have to have a check on it. Yeah. Now, listen, I, I could listen to you all day talk about this. I really appreciate your time today. Duff Conacher from uh, Democracy Watch. Thank you. My pleasure. We have for 
six years now in this country, well, more than six years, but at least for six years, been talking about medical assistance in dying and where this is going and what it should be for and who should qualify. And and it, you'll probably remember that back when this first became a law in 2016, it was for those who were facing imminent death and suffering, and that was going to be it. The government said, no, that is the line. Well, the line has moved considerably since then. And a new report that was tabled Wednesday about where we should go with mental health issues was was given. We'll maybe get into the mental health issues, but I want to bring in Dr. Senugind. He's a psychiatrist. He's associate professor at the University of Toronto. One of the things, doctor, that has really grabbed people's attention about this new report is that it is proposing that children, mature minors as young as 12, should be allowed to go ahead and choose medical assistance in dying. And even if their parents are not on board, the report says their will should override that. Are we getting into an area here where even those who support this law as an idea are getting a little a little nervous about this? So, Scott, first, thank you for having me back on. And more importantly, thank you for continuing to cover this. I think that's really essential that people are aware of what's going on. To answer your question, are we at that point where people who initially supported MADE are saying, hold on, what's going on? Uh, we are well past that point because there have already been things in expansion and where things were planned to be headed that many people, myself included, who supported the initial implementation of MADE to help ease somebody from um, you know, avoiding a painful death or helping avoid end off life suffering. We've gone so well beyond that that we are falling off a cliff. And this latest report is another sad example of that. I'll say this. I, I, I don't often claim to be right. Um, but in this case, years ago, one of the things that I had said and others too, not just me, was that when they said this is just for those in a very specific category, I said, that's fine, but somebody who now doesn't fall into that category will go to court, will sue, and this is going to be opening the door to other things. As I say, I'm not the only one. You probably said the same thing. And a lot of people said, no, 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 the whole slippery slope idea, don't go there. That's ridiculous. We are now seeing that the slope has been very, very slippery. Uh, correct. I'd, I'd say beyond slippery. And one thing that I would um, maybe frame a bit differently than what you just said is that this expansion is not something that has been mandated by the courts. That is, I would call it uh, kindly, I suppose, I would call it a convenient fallacy that some of the policymakers are telling us. It is not true. No court has ever mandated that you need to provide made for children or for mature minors. Courts have likewise not mandated that made must be provided for sole mental illness conditions. And yet, under essentially, I would say under the guise of saying, oh, well, we had to do it. We've been told we have to do it. Here's expansion. Some policymakers who, for whatever reason, are very invested in this ideology are pushing that expansion. That's the reality. 
And, and when I mentioned the slippery slope, the reason, part of the reason I mentioned that is because in this report, it says that those mature miners and how we would determine who's a mature miner, that's sort of an ethereal concept, I suppose, right now. But they would only be mature miners whose death is reasonably foreseeable. So essentially what we started with, with adults, but it says at least initially. So to me, you know, we're talking about mental health, whether you should be able to use made for mental health, which is a huge problem for a lot of people. Now we're talking about minors potentially who at some point who are depressed or have mental health issues could choose at as low as 12 years old, whether to end their life. This is to me, I don't know how much further you can go after this. This seems to be the point when we have reached almost anything goes. Well, actually, Scott, I, I will reread the report in more detail, but I actually don't believe it has even a limit of 12 years old. It doesn't have an age limit. And in terms of those reassurances and quotes that at least for now, I've come to understand that the at least for now is simply a way of um, initially selling the message. I would call it bait and switch. And I actually would suggest, and I firmly believe, that as more and more Canadians truly understand what's going on, they would not support it. But there is still this notion that, oh, we are providing made to help people compassionately avoid end-of-life suffering. And as I said, that was something which came in place in 2016, and we've gone well beyond that. Keep in mind that even at that time, when it was reasonably foreseeable death, that meant people could have up to 10 years, up to a decade left to live. It wasn't that you're imminently dying, even at that point. Mm. So now we've expanded it uh, essentially to all ages. Um, as I said, I don't believe there's even a 12-year limit. It's if the person is considered a mature minor, meaning if in the opinion of the assessor, they think the child understands and is competent, they are able to seek their own death. But sorry to jump in, but we've had assessors who have signed off on medical assistance in dying for people because they have poverty issues and they're not living a good life. I have little expectation or trust that you wouldn't be able to find someone who would sign off, say, you're a mature minor. Yeah, and I sadly, I agree with you. You know, for, I, I'm going to, I might have mentioned this journalist's name on a previous episode, I can't recall, but for those who want more details on some of what is going on in the provider's own words, and also of some of what has led to this huge expansion because of key lobbying, of, um, you know, some influential lobby uh, groups, look up the work by Alexander Raikin. It's R-A-I-K-I-N. He did one piece in the National Review recently in February, and that speaks to some of the political backdoor maneuverings behind this expansion. And he also did a piece in New Atlantis, which is what I think you were referencing, talking about the words of the providers themselves. Doctor, we, we're, we're very short on time, and, and I want to just ask you one more thing because I do want to squeeze this in just because you are a psychiatrist. I think most people would expect this answer, but let's say that it was 12. I know you said there's no age, but let's say 12 was marked as the arbitrary age. Is a 12-year-old capable of making the kind of decision that we're talking about? 
So look, I'm going to let your own listeners reflect on that. We have age limits for voting. We have age limits for purchasing alcohol, guns, tobacco, and other things. We now have no age limit for seeking your own death, potentially. And in the words of the committee itself, this just, to me, strikes at the heart of how they have completely ignored evidence and caution. The committee in its own report acknowledges, they say it was widely acknowledged, that the frontal lobe of the brain, which plays a key role in risk assessment and decision-making, is not fully developed until well into adulthood. That's a scientific fact. They even acknowledge it. And then they cite the the opinions of a few individuals, of a few witnesses, who affirmed that they believe children and adolescents suffering from serious illness possess an uncommon level of maturity. That is stunning to me. In other words, they're saying we're throwing evidence out the window. We know the brains aren't fully developed for decision making, but we hear that some people think these adolescents and children can make these decisions anyways. And guess what? We're going to go with that. That's appalling. Dr. Sanu Gain, a psychiatrist, professor at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it today. Thanks, Scott. Take care. Have a good weekend as well. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Uh, listen, thank you to Will for uh, lining up our show today. Thank you to Tom for keeping us on the air with his tech- technical expertise. Thank you to our fantastic guests who uh, covered a lot of bases today and a lot of territory on a very, very busy Friday. Uh, thank you to you especially for listening and for spending some time with us. We really do appreciate it. Scott Thompson will be back sometime next week, I am sure. I will hope you will have a fantastic long weekend. Have a great family day. We will talk to you soon. Take care. Well, Scott, I will say this much. If they actually vote on the idea that kids 12 and up are allowed to request medical assistance in dying, what we're essentially saying as a Canadian populace If you are experiencing these feelings, we give up.